Okay. All right. Here we go. Hi, friends. Uh, welcome back and welcome to House Wine. Uh, we're going to take just, I guess, a little bit of a departure today uh, away from what we have normally been doing. And we're going to focus on a single AOP. But before we do, uh, there's one major thing happening in wine right now. It's happening at this very minute, right as I am recording this podcast. Uh, Mount Etna is erupting. They've just closed the airport uh, due to some safety concerns. There's, you know, smoke billowing out of the top of the volcano. uh, And no doubt this is going to affect wine. Now, uh, many of the vines are dormant right now as it is winter. So unlike some of the things like the fires in Napa, I don't know um, necessarily if this is going to smoke taint the vines or the grapes. But... It's definitely something to keep an eye on as it unfolds. Also, uh, volcanoes are just super cool. So if you haven't checked it out already uh, or seen footage of it or read about it, it's still unfolding and we will surely be talking about it more once we know sort of what the impact on viticulture and the impact on wine is going to be and sort of how this is going to affect the wine world or the winemaking world of Etna, that is. So throw Etna Volcano into the Google search bar and uh, take a peek at it because it's pretty cool stuff and it's definitely uh, going to have some influence on wine in the not too distant future. So we'll see. Uh, And like I said, volcanoes are very cool to me. Anyway, and if you're a wine nerd, uh, then to you probably as well. So this is it. We're going to uh, get a little bit more technical. We're going to focus on a single AOP. We haven't really done that uh, yet. I mean, we did an episode on Alsace, and Alsace AOP is an AOP in its own right. Uh, So is the Loire. Um, But what I'm trying to get at is that instead of looking at the entire region of the Southern Rhone as one entity, we are going to parcel out Chateau Neuf de Pape into its own episode, uh, and then we're going to look at the rest of the Southern Rhone uh, next week. I had originally planned on just doing like one uh, conglomerate uh, Southern Rhone episode, but I spilled sake all over my computer. I'd done, I'd recorded, pre-recorded a bunch of episodes um, and was doing a, doing a sake tasting at home, like Zoom style, uh, and then... I ordered ramen to go with my sake. I was like, oh, this is a perfect time to order ramen. Uh, Ordered ramen and then uh, flicked two of the sake glasses all over my old, now old laptop. So I had to get a new laptop, lost a couple of my recordings uh, and thought it was a good opportunity to sort of reconfigure the way that I had done things because the Southern Rhone is very, there's a lot going on. And to sort of um, do like history and wine styles and everything all in one episode uh, was <laughs> turned out to be very intense. So I sort of figured if I parceled out Chateau Neuf de Pop into its own uh, and then did the rest next episode, we would get a sort of better understanding of why these wines are important, what the style is, what the grapes are. And uh, and yeah, and really, really dive a little bit deeper into Chateau Neuf de Pop. Uh, than in the rest of the Southern Rhone because Chateau Neuf du Pape is intense. And I mean that in the sense that uh, it's a region with a lot going on and a lot of history. So without further ado, you don't need to hear me go on about how I know I'm a a dum-dum who spilled sake all over my computer, but let's get into it. Let's talk about Chateau Neuf du Pape. 
And I haven't used any sources here uh, that I haven't used previously, so I'll put them in the show notes if you're interested in knowing what I read for this episode. Uh, and let's, yeah, let's do this thing. So Chateauneuf de Pop has one of the more interesting histories relating to wine in France, to my to my <laughs> to my taste, to my perspective. And it has an interesting history without war. And I say that because a lot of the regions in France, uh, like Alsace is a great example again, where history is the history is fascinating, but it has um, the winemaking history is very much tied to the history of wars in the region. And in Chateauneuf de Pop, you get this very rich history and, you know, all this drama, uh, but it's not really based in war. It's really based on the commercial and religious significance of the area. So if you listen to last week when we talked about the Northern Rhone, uh, then you know that the Romans brought grapes to the Rhone Valley in 600 BCE. And it was not a runaway success from the beginning, though viticulture uh, didn't take off here, really, until the Pope Clement Clément V moved his papacy uh, from Rome to Avignon in the south of France, and that was in the early 14th century, so like 1306 or 1310 around is when they think that happened. Uh, And south of France, not a bad place to hang out and drink wine, if you're the Pope, I might add. And that's when things really started... um, like to take off for the wine industry. Uh, and the Pope really started promoting wine growing in the region. Chateau Neuf de Pape itself, uh, as I think I mentioned again last episode, is the literal translation, New Castle of the Pope. And the name uh, was established after the papal vineyard was established. And that actually wasn't done by Clément V. That was done by Clément's successor, John Twelfth. I had to <laughs> Google <laughs> that Roman numeral. I, guys, <laughs> Roman numerals are very, oh, what an annoyance. Anyways, it was John Twelfth, And even after his papacy uh, moved back to Rome, the castle established in Avignon became the summer home of the Pope. Again, like I said, not a bad place to be hanging out and drinking wine. So the significance of making wine in the region continued even after the Pope had left southern France. After that, most of the history of Chateauneuf de Pape takes place in the late 19th and 20th century. So like the rest of France, Chateauneuf got hit with phylloxera in the 1870s, which was actually one of the first regions in all of France to really uh, fall victim to the Laos and have their vineyards completely devastated. And this is really where we start to see some of the interesting things happen in Chateauneuf de Pape. Though they weren't really unique in being totally devastated by phylloxera, they were one of the first places to really Uh, feel the fallout of phylloxera. And this is a place where we start to see a lot of that sort of uh, post-phylloxera damage and post-phylloxera fallout start to happen. It's during this time uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century that there started being a rise in counterfeit wines. Uh, Now, due to a few world fairs and some really good trade agreements with England, French wine had been enjoying quite a bit of success through the mid-20th, sorry, through the mid-19th century. They really saw uh, an economic boom for fine wines coming out of France, and the international demand for these wines uh, really went up. This is where you sort of see, like, the popularity of Wines like Bordeaux and Burgundy really sort of come to the forefront. So not being able to produce wine due to phylloxera became a really big problem for many of the established regions like Bordeaux and like the south of France, who were already operating as though they were brands, even though the AOP system 
didn't really take a hold uh, until a little bit later. Now, at this time, Chateauneuf de Pape, which was not yet called Chateauneuf de Pape, many of these wines were being sold under the name uh, Van d'Avignon. And uh, Van d'Avignon had another interesting history where a really good portion of these wines was being sent up the river and used as a fortification for the wines of Burgundy, uh, which was a region that is subject to quite a bit of vintage variation. So the wines there uh, can suffer a lot from hail and frost uh, and be a little thin, especially sort of pre-global warming days. Uh, And it's odd for us to think today that the great wines, the great Pinot Noirs of Burgundy once needed a little push from Chateau de Pape, but it was a a different time. And uh, this isn't to say that the wines of what is now Chateau de Pape were not being sold or had a reputation in their own right. They were. Um, they were just used for a, like really a multitude of commercial purposes. So the fallout of Phylloxera, if you have ever read the book Extra Virginity, bad name, but it was a really popular book about 10 years ago. And uh, I read it. I thought it was quite good. It's about the olive oil scandal in Italy. And basically, it's about how more olive oil uh, with the words made in Italy on the label is on shelves in grocery stores than could ever physically ever be produced in Italy. So the same thing was really happening to French wine at the turn of the century, and it was really happening in regions like Bordeaux and like Chateauneuf-du-Pape. There was a lack of supply uh, because a lot of their vineyards had been devastated, and Chateauneuf, like I said, was really the first region to fall victim to counterfeiting. Wines that were being made elsewhere uh, in southern France, wines that were being made in Spain or even Italy, were being imported and then often sold as fraudulent Chateau Neuf de Pape. Then, of course, uh, we fast forward a little bit to the First World War. And though they were not, you know, digging trenches in the area that is now uh, Chateau Neuf, wine regions uh, like this lost a lot of young men that would make up the bulk of their workforce. So the combined effect of phylloxera... Uh, And then the war sort of left these regions with diluted identities uh, caused by fraud and counterfeiting and just not enough people to work the vineyards. Suffice to say, uh, at this time, sort of 1920s, early 1930s, French wine was a little bit of a mess. Uh, No one tell the French that. In there, it has always been perfect. But there was, it was, it wasn't great. Um, and it was really a man named Pierre Marie Gabriel Vincent Ernest Leroy de, Bo- de Boiseau Marie. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just going to say that again. Pierre Marie Gabriel Vincent Ernest Leroy de Boiseau Marie. That was his full name, guys. It's intense. He has a nickname, it's Baron Leroy, which is much better for most of us. Uh, He married into the Chateau Fortia, one of the most prestigious houses in Chateau de Pape at the time. And he and his friend, uh, Joseph-Marie Capus, I love how, uh, like, old-timey French names, men always have the middle name Marie. It's, yeah, it's it's one of my favorites. But Joseph-Marie Capus, uh, who was the French Minister of Agriculture, they were really fed up with the counterfeiting. Uh, They both loved wine. They were both military men. They both had a lot of patriotism and loved France, loved their country, and they'd both fought in the First World War. So they sat down and they made some rules. And the rules uh, were rules that were to be adhered by or adhered to by uh, a group of wine growers in Chateau Neuf-de-Pape. 
And then they gave the region a, a name. Uh, like I said, previous to this, it had really been known as Van d'Avignon, Avignon being the main town around Chateauneuf-du-Pape, but they they gave it this name uh, based on, you know, the history of the region, the new castle of the Pope. So the rules that they made up for Chateauneuf-du-Pape became the outline for the entire AOC system. Remember uh, that it started as AOC and then later, much later, became AOP for the whole European Union. Uh, So early in the days, uh, the rules for what eventually became the INAO and the AOC system were just general anti-counterfeiting rules. They wanted to make sure that the wine was coming from the place it said it was coming from, that it had a clear identity based on terroir, uh, and so that this no longer this like wishy-washy wine that is like kind of from around Avignon, the wines that had this identity were called Chateauneuf-de-Pape, and the wines had a name. They had a place. The place was delimited. It was given borders. And so now many of the adjacent regions to Chateauneuf-de-Pape also got on the bandwagon, and they started delimiting their borders as well, namely Gigondas and Vacuras, but we'll talk more about those two guys uh, next episode. But really, the history of the Southern Rhone is the history of Chateau Neuf de Pape because Chateau Neuf de Pape really made this uh, this whole thing a movement. It may, it really they started the ball rolling on this anti counterfeiting cultural terroir driven identity. And this is still France we're talking about, so. The whole thing wasn't without its snubs. <laughs> Originally, Chateauneuf-de-Pape outlined that they could only make red and white wine. Uh, even though there had been a long history of rosé in the region, many thought that the reason behind the snubbing was sort of a jab at their neighbor, Tavel, who only made rosé. So they wanted to differentiate and just be like, we're better than Tavel. But uh, rosé kind of gets... Rosé gets, oh, that's my stomach. Rosé gets its comeuppance. There's a a lot of rosé going on outside of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. But long story short, Chateauneuf-du-Pape became the first AOC uh, with legally delimited borders and legally delimited wine styles in 1936. Thank you, Baron Leroy. So what are the rules for making wine in Chateauneuf-du-Pape? And what kind of wines are they making there? Now, now that we know why this region was so historic, it basically set the model for what would end up being uh, wine law in the entire European Union. Again, don't tell that to the Italians. I have a special uh, episode on Italian wine law coming up. We'll talk about it soon. But they are uh, pretty adamant that they invented it, though it was... I pretty well documented that it was not them. I think it's important here to note um, that Chateauneuf-de-Pape is the mouth of the river. So, or really the whole southern Rhone is the mouth of the river, but Avignon is really this commercial hub. Uh, So long before it ever became important for wine, there's a lot of trade happening here from all over the Mediterranean. And this is where because the river empties out into the sea, we see a lot of wine coming uh, from northern France into the Mediterranean basin. And we also see a lot of wine from the Mediterranean coming in through the south of France. So there's a lot of exchange of grapes happening and a lot of trade. Uh, The Loire River is also a very good example of this, how you kind of see lots of different AOPs with like lots of different styles and lots of different grapes. You kind of get that in the southern Rhone too. So 
Brace yourselves. <laughs> take a seat. Take a deep breath. There are 18 grapes permitted in the production of Chateau Neuf de Pape. But before we get into it, just a super quick note about geography. So obviously this region is on the Rhone River, and I don't think that we need to kick a dead horse and say how important rivers are for agriculture and for viticulture. But Chateau Neuf de Pape is the most famous uh, AOP in the Southern Rhone, and I think that's also important to note. It is hot here. It is one of the hottest regions in France, and it's so hot that by the AOP rules, uh, they have the highest minimum alcohol allowed in all of France at 12.5%. That's kind of the low end for this region because a lot of these wines actually clock in at about 15% alcohol by volume. That's like Napa Valley level. That's a lot. Because it's along the banks of the river, they also have a lot of river stones in the vineyards, and these are uh, locally called galettes, G-A-L-E-T-S. They are left over from the riverbed, uh, which was much wider and spread across the valley uh, all over the southern Rhone. And these are sort of like hand-sized white rocks that are made of quartzite. And it's actually important because uh, because they're white, they absorb heat from the sun during the day and release it at night, which is important when grapes are ripening on the vine. Think about like those white houses in Santorini, how they retain all that heat and then let it out at night. So you have this like beautiful weather all day, all night. Ugh, to travel again one day soon. Hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, but I just want to get that out of the way uh, so that we know how hot it is here even before we start talking about the grapes uh, and that there's a lot of heat retention in that soil. Uh, so I might have scared you. I scared myself a little bit when I said there are 18 grapes that can possibly make up Chateau Neuf de Pape. Uh, but the real star here, the real grape, um, the standby, the go-to is Grenache. And Grenache is a big grape. It's literally a big grape. It's a grape with some of the largest berries of all grapevines. And this is probably because Grenache uh, really loves hot weather. Grapes are just like any other fruit. When the weather is hot, they get big and juicy, which is why if you like a full-bodied fruity wine, it can be a good idea to look for wines that are grown in a hot place. If you like a cooler, more acidic, crisp wine, it can be a good idea to seek out wines that are grown in a cool place. Grenache is one of these like hot climate loving grapes. It has a thin skin, which means it has relatively low tannins. Uh, and because it's grown in a hot place, it usually is quite fruity. It has a lot of the characteristics of red fruit, like raspberry and strawberry. It's also known to have a little bit of sort of floral herbaceousness, more like a lavender quality. And though the tannins are low, it can have some medium to medium plus level of acidity and usually comes, uh, because it's hot there, uh, with pretty high alcohol, uh, just because a grape that is sweeter and juicier makes more alcohol when it's fermented. It's usually uh, at this point that I like to tell you the origin of the grape, but Grenache uh, is a little mysterious. This is an old grape. Uh, it's done some traveling. <laughs> they are growing Grenache all around the Mediterranean, uh, and it really does find a home in Spain where they call it Garnacha, and in the south of France, where we're talking about now, where they call it Grenache. But this grape is grown really, really all over. Like you find it even in places like Lebanon and Turkey. Uh, and there's really a lot of debate about the origins of this grape. I went on a bit of a, 
uh, down a bit of a rabbit hole with this, but many people think uh, that it's originally from the island of Sardinia and that it's actually a native Italian grape. Uh, and it's still grown in Sardinia today, and it goes by the name uh, Cannonau there, C-A-N-N-O-N-A-U. There's also another belief uh, that it originated in Spain, uh, where we see sort of the most plantings of this grape still today. It's also where we see most mutations of Grenache occur. It's where uh, we see the mutation Garnacha Blanca, which is the white version of Grenache, and Grenache Gris uh, pop up, which is the pink-skinned version of the grape. Uh, but luckily for us who are studying wine, <laughs> I said there's 18 grapes in Chateau Neuf de Pop. Uh, those are two of the ones that are permitted, Garnacha Blanca and Grenache Gris. Just a, a little side note. Uh, but Grenache is such an ancient grape, uh, and it was traded so often throughout you know, towns and villages along Mediterranean coastlines that I, it kind of feels like it's one of those grapes we may never really know uh, where it came from. <laughs> it's, you know, it's still, they're still doing DNA tests. And uh, one day I'll do an episode on, on the crazy history of Zinfandel um, and sort of how we found out where that grape came from. But it's, it's Croatia, guys. It's a tiny little town in Croatia. But it feels like Grenache has a similar history. It's, it feels like it's a grape that, you know, probably started in somebody's garden and then just, you know, was easy to grow and then just proliferated all over uh, the Mediterranean coast. And, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if we ever, we ever find out. We have the DNA testing now, so they're finding out the origins of grapes all the time. And it's exciting stuff. I love that kind of stuff. I love grape origins. It's, it's, yeah, it's stupid, but I love it. So though Grenache is often the star, the uh, the diva of, C- of Chateau Neuf de Pape, uh, it's rarely there on its own. It, Chateau Neuf de Pape is nearly always a blend. And the most common uh, partners for blending are its best friend to the north, Syrah, and then two grapes that I don't think we've uh, actually talked about too much yet, and that is Mouvedre, Mouvedre, M-O-U-R-V-E-D-R-E, which sometimes you'll hear uh, this blend, the blend of Grenache, Syrah, and Mouvedre, uh, just sort of colloquially called GSM, uh, and that's sort of more a new world thing. They'll call it uh, GSM in Australia uh, or in uh, California. A little bit more. Uh, and then there is uh, one of the more common grapes that is also put into the blend, and that is Sanso, uh, which I actually think we did talk about a little bit in the South Africa episode, because historically, like Grenache, uh, this is a grape that is drought resistant and likes hot weather. Syrah and Mouvedre really bring tannins to this wine. Uh, And Grenache on its own is a little bit prone to oxidization. Think when wines have kind of lost their fruit flavor and are starting to taste uh, as though they're heading towards the flavor of vinegar. That's sort of what oxidization is. And the tannin from Syrah and Mouvedre almost act to strengthen it a bit and stave off that premature oxidization. Uh, Because... I mean, all wine gets old eventually. It's like people. It doesn't last forever. But, you know, there's things you can do to to preserve your good looks. And Syrah and Mouvedre really help Grenache along uh, with the ageability. 
Uh, the rest of the red grape varieties are as follows, and I will just name them. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail because they just really aren't that popular, but they're legally allowed to be used, and that is Cunoise, Muscardin, Pique Poule, Terrette, and this one, which I have a uh, very hard time saying, uh, Vacarez. Vacarez? Vacarez. <laughs> you know, I, I'm actually a French speaker, but some of these grape names, I'm like, I don't know where they actually came from. It's V-A-C-C-A-R-E-S-E. And uh, like I said, these are not common grapes. Uh They are all grown in and around the south of France, but the chances are that if you go to a wine shop and grab a bottle, uh, it's not going to be a bottle of Tourette, and it's not going to be a bottle of Vaccarez. Chances are slim. That's not to say that there isn't somebody out there uh, making, you know, single varietal Vaccarez, but these wines are very much dwarfed by uh, the bigger names, Uh, like Grenache and Syrah. And when you have a a wine that's so brand strong, like Chateau Neuf du Pape, um, why would you be making a monovarietal Vaccarez wine? Unless you were like just, you know, you had your Chateau Neuf du Pape on the shelf, it was doing great, and you just wanted to make something as a lark and experiment. Um, And then there are also the white grapes. And uh, there is Chateau Neuf de Pape uh, Blanc. And we've talked about Grenache Blanc and Gris, which although Gris is technically a pink skin grape, uh, kind of lump it in with the whites. But the most famous grape here, uh, we've already talked about it actually last episode, is Roussan. And there is no Marsan here. Uh, It just sort of hangs out on its own. And it's blended with a few of its less famous friends. uh, And those are the white grapes. Picardin, Bourboulanque, and Claret. Again, grapes that don't really get much play on their own. Not that they aren't being made, but they're usually, like, usually in quotations, they're blending partners. And the whites here uh, are very similar to the sort of Roussan Marsan blends that you would see in the Northern Rhone. They're usually uh, oaked, and they're usually very rich in style. If you are a drinker of a more full-bodied Chardonnay, then white Chateau Neuf du Pape may be a wine that you should get your hands on and try. You'd probably like it. So we talked about history. We talked about soil and geography. <laughs> we talked about the grapes. And the only thing really left to talk about here is the producers. And this is key because Chateau Neuf du Pape is a blend, and there's a lot of different grapes permitted. And so it's often a blend uh, that's based on a house style uh, that sort of goes hand in hand with the typicity of the region. But producers can vary. And you can have Chateau Neuf de Pops, like two uh, Chateau Neuf de Pops side by side. They really don't taste alike at all. And uh, this is really where finding a producer that you like or a producer that you trust uh, comes into play. Because Chateau Neuf de Pop is pretty varied. When it comes to price, there are some really big uh, producers at play uh, making some very expensive wines. And then there's also some sort of mid-level and entry-level wines. You have very, very big houses uh, like Chateau Beaucastel, which is a brand under the winemaking giant of Family Perrin. And they're making some of the most sought-after and expensive examples of Chateau Neuf de Pape. The nice thing is that if you go to their website, uh, they will tell you the exact blend of each vintage of their wine. 
how much of it is Grenache and how much of it is its friends. Uh, so depending on the year and the weather, as Chateauneuf-du-Pape is a region that is pretty heavily influenced by climate change, uh, the blend itself changes to be the closest to what it can be to that house style. A little like the way they blend champagne to always be the taste of that champagne house. For the most part, though, it doesn't change too much. And Beaucastel is a really good example of how Chateauneuf-du-Pape doesn't just rest on the laurels of Grenache necessarily. The blend here is only 30% Grenache. Uh, the next most prominent grape that makes up the blend is actually Mouvedre, which also clocks in at a whopping 30%, which is quite a bit of Mouvedre. And uh, another important thing to note about this producer is that they constantly make a Chateau Neuf du Pape Blanc. And uh, that is probably considered to be one of the best uh, white Chateau Neuf du Papes that you can get your hands on. It is almost entirely Roussin, uh, and it is considered to be sort of one of the more age-worthy white wines of the Southern Rhone. Now, one of the reasons that I like Beaucastel as an example is because, like I said, it is owned by uh, the sort of winemaking umbrella of Femi Perrin, uh, which owns a few brands all around the south of France, and they have their own wine and winery called Femi Perrin. And they're also making wine of their own, uh, their own Chateau Neuf de Pape under this brand. So where you have a wine like Beaucastel uh, that is uh, the best of the best of the best, and might run you closer to around $100 a bottle. You have the wines of Femi Perrin uh, and their own Chateau Neuf de Pape, which hover around $35 a bottle, which is sort of uh, more attractive for everyday drinking. You also have a lot of names uh, from the Northern Rhone that have vineyard holdings in the South and are also making great wines from all over the Rhone Valley in North and South, but specifically also in Chateau Neuf de Pape. So if you listen to last week's episode, uh, the Chapoutiers of Hermitage uh, might be out of your budget, (laughs) but if you're curious to drink something from such an iconic producer, then you may be interested in knowing that they are also making an exceptional and sought-after Chateau Neuf de Pape. I mean, there are really tons of great wine here, which is why I gave it its own episode so that we could really do it some justice. And I could go on about, you know, Chateau Rias and Vieux Telegraph and some other huge players in the scene of uh, Chateau Neuf. But I think that I'm going to leave it here for now. Uh, Much like everywhere else in the world of wine, you will have to sort of discover the rest on your own. I've you know, giving you the the seed to take from my palm. It's a burden, I know, but you're just going to have to go out and drink a bottle of, of Chateau Neuf de Pop this week. Um, and it's also very distinct. Actually, I should have talked about this earlier, but it's a very distinctive bottle uh, because they have these embossed, um, like the, the bottles themselves are embossed and written right along the top of the bottle uh, is an insignia that looks like three keys in the shape of a fleur-de-lis and says... Chateau Neuf de Pape. Uh, and that was actually designed way back in 1934 when they were originally trying to distinguish uh, their wines from counterfeiters. And it was created by our boy, Baron Leroy. He really went all out. Actually, the keys are meant to represent the keys of the Cathedral of the Pope. And in 2004, uh, the French Supreme Court deemed that the embossed bottle of Chateauneuf de Pape was indeed proprietary to the region and could not be used for any other wines. More nerd stuff. Ah, 
Love it. Um, but that's the end of the episode. Uh, so look for the embossed label. Look for the look for the keys. Uh, the keys to the papal castle. Uh, go out and grab a bottle and give it a try. What do I have to tell you at the end of the episode? I tried Twitter. I hated it. Uh, so now Housewine has its own Instagram, where I will be experimenting with reels. If you haven't checked them out, I've been making some wine map reels. I'm very proud of them. Uh, and it is at Housewine podcast on Instagram. Uh, as per usual, I love to tell you that House Wine is an independent podcast. Each episode is written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rachel. So if Chateau Neuf de Pop sparked your interest and you're thinking of grabbing a bottle, uh, make sure to scroll down, like, rate, leave a review, and comment. Uh, that's one of the best ways you can support the show. And of course, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend that you love to drink wine with about it. Uh, if you have spotted something that needs correcting or you would like to request a wine region, you can email the podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. The art was done by Kelly Lauren. She's wonderful and you can check her out at K-L-Y-L-A-U-R-E-N. And my personal Instagram handle is Rachel Picard. So Rachel with an A-E-L and Picard like the cat. Uh, I hope you all have a fabulous week and that you get a bottle of Southern Rhone wine to try and I'll see you next week. Okay, bye friends.